John chapter 1 and verse 1. Unlike Matthew and Luke, John does not include a genealogy of Jesus. Now, Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through which God promised to bless all the nations. That's Matthew. Luke's genealogy carries us back further to Adam. Jesus has come to reverse the curse that Adam introduced through the Edenic rebellion. John's gospel takes us back even further. Beyond human ancestry, right into eternity past. You cannot read John 1 and verse 1 without hearing echoes of the creation account in Genesis 1 and verse 1. Let's read together. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now this statement is so theologically dense and philosophically significant that it's going to take us a few weeks to actually work through. I warned you about this last week. Today, let's just address this question. Why does John call Jesus the Word? The Greek term, translated word, is logos. And John did not invent the term. He employed a common term that circulated in philosophy for centuries. That term also connects us to voluminous amounts of Old Testament revelation And that term also projects us forward through the remainder of the New Testament. So today, let's understand the term logos in these three contexts. Number one, the context of Greek philosophy. You'll have to bear with me on this. You're going to really enjoy this. You're going to see something really, really cool. Number two, the context of the Old Testament. And number three, the context of the New Testament. Let's first consider the term logos in Greek philosophy because I really do believe that John is responding to the culture all around him in a magnificent way when he calls Jesus the logos. Thales is widely regarded as the father of Greek philosophy. He lived in the small town of Miletus near Ephesus. Greek philosophy thus originated in a region that would later witness the rise of some of the New Testament churches, the churches of Asia Minor. It was from Miletus that Paul summoned the Ephesian elders while he was journeying to Jerusalem. 
Thales was intrigued by the question, what is the world made of? And by that he meant the whole universe. He sought to discover some ultimate substance that gave rise to everything he could see. And he assumed, we don't know why, that there must be some basic material substance, some element that gave rise to everything else. And that element, he decided, was water. And frankly, little has changed. Modern physicists are still searching for a theory of everything. And they are building great big particle accelerators. And they are trying to discover the most basic particle of all. This process began way back in ancient Greek philosophy with Thales. Well, Thales observed that water solidified becomes hard, water vaporized becomes air, all living things require water for survival, and further, if you go out to the end of any landmass, there's water. So apparently the whole earth just floats on water. So maybe everything came from water. He introduced the most influential problem in ancient philosophy. It sometimes is called the problem of the one and the many. Is there some single source that accounts for the complex world? Do all things ultimately come from some material source? That was his question. And Aximander was a pupil of Thales. And he questioned Thales' water theory. If everything came from water, where did all the water come from? Anaximander ultimately had to concede that everything came from a payron. A payron. A payron refers to a boundless or an edgeless something, or as he defined it, it ended up being nothing at all, nothing physical. I have from time to time asked my philosophy students to think about nothing. The ladies say it's impossible. The guys tell me they've been doing it since class began. (laughs) I once asked what they saw when they thought about nothing. They answered black, empty space. I asked them to get rid of the black, empty space, since space itself must be something since it occupies dimensions. And most replaced the black, empty space with white, empty space. So one smart outgo told me that he saw clear. I said, well, look through it. What do you see? He goes, oh, there's the black empty space. (laughs) Well, Anaximenes had no time for Anaximander's idea that the earth sprang from nothing. How do you get something from nothing? Unlike Thales, he suggested the most basic element was air. Maybe everything comes from air. Heraclitus countered again, supposing that fire was the basic element. If fire can consume things into itself, perhaps it can breathe them back out again. And Xenophanes countered yet again, suggesting the earth was the ultimate substance, the earth, the physical dirt beneath our feet. And by the way, he was the first person to talk about the flood in the fossil record that covered the whole planet. Xenophanes. And thus, the four basic elements, earth, air, water, and fire, were recognized. But the problem of the origin of all things remained a mystery. Where do you get all this, earth, air, and water, and fire? There's an old Hindu tale that illustrates the problem. Sahib once asked a Hindu wise man what held up the earth. And the wise man said, well, it's a great big platform. 
Sahib asked, what holds up the platform? The wise man responded, an elephant. And under the elephant, Sahib rejoined, a giant turtle, said the wise man. And under the turtle, frustrated, the wise man responded, after that, as turtles all the way down. <laughs> and here's the point. Once you commit yourself to a particular kind of explanation, you've got to follow it all the way down. You have to explain everything from fire, everything from water. Can we do that? So other philosophers came along and they just abandoned this whole quest for any kind of material explanation for the universe and began looking for immaterial sources. Pythagoras boldly asserted that numbers constitute ultimate reality. All nature, he says, has a mathematical subtext. Since triangles and squares and circles can be reduced to equations, perhaps all physical substances can be reduced to equations. And frankly, much of modern physics is built on the assumption that nature is reducible to mathematical equations like E equals MC squared. In fact, the late Stephen Hawking went so far as to call Pythagoras the first theoretical physicist. Pythagoras started a cult in which his followers worshipped the number 10 and refused to eat beans. And then came Anaxagoras. I'm going somewhere with all this. You realize that, okay? It's going to be fun when we get there. Anaxagoras just moved the discussion further, suggesting that all reality was the result of noose. Greek students, you know this term. It's the word for mind. All of reality comes from a mind. There is some sort of cosmic intelligence out there behind the intricate universe that we observe. How else do you explain it without a mind? To claim with Pythagoras that mathematics underlies the universe is true so far as it goes, but doesn't mathematics imply a mind, a mathematician? Only mind could design the universe with mathematical precision. Now, Anaxagoras was moved, or, or moved, I should say, the discussion in the only possible direction one can go. Once you realize that you cannot get a universe from water, or earth, or air, or fire, or nothing, where else are you going to go? But Anaxagoras' noose is not yet God, as in the God of the Bible. Because for him, Noose is not a knowable person. Noose is sort of this impersonal, distant force that just spins off the universe. And Exagoras did not discover the self-revealing God of the Bible, so far as we know. Well, that's about as far as the discussion goes until two great philosophers emerge, Plato and Aristotle. And despite significant disagreements, they advanced the discussion enormously. In the famous fresco of the School of Athens, the Italian Renaissance painter Raphael depicts many of these philosophers that I've already named. But at the center of that painting stand Plato and Aristotle, two great ancient philosophers. And Plato's right hand points upward. 
He symbolizes that education should ultimately pursue the immaterial, invisible world above. That we ought to go looking for a reality beyond our physical creation. Plato followed the tradition of Pythagoras and Anaxagoras, using mathematics to discover some sort of mind behind the universe that establishes these perfect ideas, these perfect forms, as he called them. The form, the, 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 the material things that we see be, below are only shadows of the greater reality above. Ultimate reality for Plato lay beyond the reach of our senses. And Plato believed that education should liberate prisoners from the dark cave of ignorance and free them to access this higher realm through reason. Or are you ready for this? Through Lagos. Plato believed that there is some sort of mind out there that structured everything and we can know something of that mind through Lagos. Plato was drawn to eternal truths, to perfect forms, to the soul and to God. The lower world claimed Plato was just a shadow reality. The Lagos could reveal eternal mysteries. And for Plato, the good, that is his name for an impersonal God, was the, was the source of all the perfect archetypes that are shadowed faintly in the world below in trees and rocks and everything that we see. Now, Plato's student, Aristotle, disagreed. In Raphael's painting, Aristotle's right hand gestures outward. He symbolizes the recognition that education should concern itself with the discovery of this world, this creation all around us. Aristotle continued the tradition of investigating the visible earth, of air and water and fire. But Aristotle really advances the discussion. For Aristotle, a very careful investigation of nature just dispels the shadows and reveals a creation that is elegantly designed, purposeful, intentional, set in motion by a prime mover, a God who put everything in the motion. The world, according to Aristotle, is teleological, which is a Greek term that we actually find in the New Testament. And it refers to order or purpose. When something is teleological, it means it has a purpose. It's not random, it has a purpose. So for Aristotle, there is indeed a mind beyond reality, but that mind manifests itself through the creation. Not beyond it, but through the creation that is organized and designed and purposeful and intentional. Now Raphael's painting depicts an impasse in ancient philosophy. Should we follow Plato out of the visible world into the invisible world and discover the eternal mind? Or should we follow Aristotle right into the visible world? The world that is set in motion by a distant prime mover who whirls all these spinning galaxies into existence. Well, I really truly believe that that whole argument that has been developed over centuries, pressurizes 
the first words of John's gospel. You can feel the pressure now when you read verse 1. In the beginning was the Logos. Again, John did not introduce that term. They've been talking about this for a very long time. How do we account for the structure, the design of the universe? In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Not earth, wind, air, fire. The Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So it would seem that indeed Plato is correct to insist there is a higher world. There is a logos. There is a higher power. There is an eternal mind that presides over all the visible world and that brought it all into existence. God is indeed a boundless, edgeless being who exists beyond the material limits of creation. That much is true. And frankly, the theme of a higher reality is a subtext that just runs right through John's gospel. Jesus in John 8, 23 said this, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Well, it sounds like Plato got it right. There's something more to reality than we can see. But Plato's view was incomplete. For Plato, as also for Heraclitus and the Stoics, the Logos was impersonal. However, John's Gospel describes the Logos with personal pronouns. This is monumentally significant. Notice the first word of verse 2. He. This is totally new. And in verses 3 and 4, through him, without him, and in him as a person. Those personal pronouns are incredibly significant. God is no distant, uninterested, blind force spinning off material worlds. God is not merely new, some sort of divine mind without personal attributes. God is a person. God can make himself known to other persons. And that's not all. The Logos, as a person, can become embodied in his creation. Look at verse 14. The Logos, the word, the Logos, became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, the Logos was a person from another world entering our own as an embodied human being. Word become flesh. And to behold the word become flesh is to embrace the presence that is the glory of the eternal God. In this context, the word glory is synonymous with presence. We have embraced the presence of the Father in a body through the Logos. And think of John's first epistle. John describes the humanity of Jesus Christ in deliberately scientific terms. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
John describes Jesus as detectable with three empirical senses. You're hearing, you're seeing, and you're touching. John's logos has a body. Well, this really is astonishing because it means that Aristotle was also correct. Aristotle correctly assumed that the physical world around us is a proper study. We should be interested in the creation that surrounds us. What greater justification for exploring creation than the truth that God himself entered his creation, that God himself became a creature, that God himself came in a flesh and blood human body to redeem his creation, to raise it to new life by his resurrection from the dead. You really should go out and discover creation. Aristotle got it right. But also, like like, like Plato, Aristotle, there we go, Plato and Aristotle together, like Plato, Aristotle's preoccupation with the lower world is incomplete. For Aristotle, God was this distant and personal prime mover. But Jesus came to reveal a person. He came to reveal the Father. Jesus told Philip in John 14 and verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not some distant prime mover. You have seen the Father. And you've seen Jesus in his body. Jesus came to reveal the boundless, edgeless, eternal God to his creation. Jesus is the flesh and blood incarnation of God. So that means, friends, that the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus Christ just collapses that gulf between Plato and Aristotle. Should we go this way? Should we go this way? Jesus permanently unites heaven and earth. Plato pointed to a world beyond. Aristotle pointed to the world that surrounds us. And Jesus resurrected and claimed all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. The two worlds are brought together. The incarnation unites heaven and earth. So the Gospel of John, I believe, answers the great question put forward by the world's greatest philosophers. They struggled with this for centuries. And John comes along and just pens. John chapter 1. There's your answer. And significantly, in Raphael's painting, Plato and Aristotle stand at the focal point in a building that was an ancient church. And in that building, the long central nave intersects with the transepts, forming a cross. They are standing at the center of the cross. The cross of Christ pulled these two estranged worlds together. The cross closes a rift that opened between heaven and earth when man first rebelled against his creator. It's the cross of Christ that just shatters the impasse. John's gospel begins then not with Jesus' physical union with Abraham, not even with Jesus' physical union with Adam. It begins with the Creator's union with all His creation through the Incarnation. 
The incarnation was so vastly important to the early church that it dominated theological discussion and a whole series of church councils for some 500 years. John Clark and Marcus Johnson write, God the Son, without ceasing to be fully God, has become fully human. The incarnation of God, therefore, is the supreme mystery at the center of our Christian confession and no less the center of all reality. John Williamson Nevin, a 19th century American theologian, got it quite right when he proclaimed, the incarnation is the key that unlocks all God's revelations. It is the key that unlocks the sense of all God's works and brings to light the true meaning of the universe. The incarnation forms thus the great central fact of the world. And that's your first context. Now the second context in which we need to really understand the Logos is the context of the Old Testament. Have you noticed that when reading through the Old Testament, you constantly hear the voice of God from heaven? It's so ubiquitous that you never stop to ask where it comes from. The voice is just there. And I know that you've noticed this because I mentioned it two weeks ago. Hope you're listening. In the Old Testament, think of it. God speaks to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to Gideon, to David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many others. He just speaks to everybody, it seems. God delivers his message to the prophets. He speaks to priests. He speaks to kings. Listen to this. Genesis 15 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram. 1 Samuel 15, 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. 2 Samuel 15, 10. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. 2 Samuel 24, 11, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. 1 Kings 6, 11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. 1 Kings 16, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jehu. 1 Kings 18, 1, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. 2 Chronicles 11, 2, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Isaiah 38, and verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Jeremiah 1, and verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Are you getting the picture? The word of the Lord, just, it just keeps coming. Like, where is it coming from? It just keeps coming all through the Old Testament, these people. Listen to the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God said, let us make man in our image. That voice just permeates the record. I mean, really, the chapter is just a recording of the voice, the logos of God. And that logos, that voice forms the entire visible universe that surrounds us. Absolutely everything we've ever discovered in all of our scientific explorations, from the depths of the Marianas Trench to the staggering heights of Mount Everest to the deepest, deepest recesses of space, it's all, all a result of that voice. You've never seen anything that is not the result of that voice. All creation is the speech of God. Friends, God speaks 
and colossal mountain ranges just burst from the ground. Ocean chasms fill with water. The galaxies ignite across the endless expanse of heaven until trillions of electrons just commence their whirling orbits around their neutrons. God speaks. God speaks. And the lungs of animals expand with air and they go thundering and hopping and slithering and cavorting right across the African plains. God speaks and whales plunge through ocean depths and birds race across the sky. God speaks and nations rise and empires crumble. God speaks and drought disappears under cascades of rejuvenating rain. God speaks and the roots of mountains rumble and grind across tectonic plates, sending molten lava spewing into the sky. God speaks, friends, and the moon circles the earth. The earth spins around the sun. The sun hurtles through space. And one great arm of the Milky Way galaxy, a great spindle arm, and that fact that whole galaxy is just turning from the voice of God. All nature moves and breathes at the command of God. Psalm 33 and verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Creation, friends, is the logos of God. Everything God speaks is revelation. God's speech is not merely the printed word in your Bible. That is God's speech. But that's not all of God's speech. God's speech is all nature. Notice the, the union in Psalm 19.2 between God's speech and God's revelation. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. God's speech is not merely God's communication of himself to his creation, but the disclosure of his identity through creation. All of God's actions testify to his identity as the creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge, and redeemer of his creation. The voice of God just permeates the Old Testament like salt permeates the ocean. It's just there. But have you noticed that the voice of God out of heaven just disappears almost entirely when you turn a single page of the New Testament? I know you know this because I've said it before. But let's just reiterate. In the Gospel of Matthew, we hear the voice briefly at the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit descends on Jesus and a voice from heaven thunders, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the voice goes silent. And we heard it only one more time in Matthew at the Transfiguration. And it gave precisely the same message with a slight addendum. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then this, listen to him. And the voice goes silent. Friends, if you have listened to the voice of Yahweh for millennia, well, then listen to the voice of Jesus. Yahweh, God, has nothing to add and nothing to subtract from the voice of Jesus. 
if you were in a conversation with Jesus, friends, it would be entirely inappropriate to say, well, let's consult God the Father. That would be totally inappropriate. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the voice goes silent. Friends, when Jesus speaks, he speaks the exact words of God without a shadow of difference. Verse 1, the Logos was with God. And get this, the Logos was God. This is God speaking. No difference. If God the Father was incarnated in the flesh of Mary's womb, in the, in the flesh, in Mary's womb, friends, he would have spoken the exact words of Jesus. The voice that rang through all the Old Testament has become flesh. John 1 and verse 14, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's cross-reference with Hebrews chapter 1. And let's just reiterate why it is that the voice, the Logos, speaking through all the Old Testament, can suddenly go silent in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews projects us right back into those Old Testament ages. He's going to carry us right back to the beginning. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Notice this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's the Old Testament. God's speech came through prophets, kings, and priests. It came through Urim and Thummim. God's speech rumbled off Sinai with peals of lightning and thunder. God's speech was delivered through dreams and visions. And God even spoke through a donkey. But all of those distributed speech acts of God suddenly become concentrated in one place. Verse 2. But in these last days, where is he speaking? He has spoken to us by his Son. If you've read through the Old Testament, you have heard the voice of Yahweh, and you want to hear more, right? Well, where do you go? The answer is, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his Son. And how is it that the Son can speak for Yahweh? Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is not similar to God. And that was an old heresy called homoousios that was condemned through the church councils. Jesus is not similar to God. That's Arianism. Jesus is exactly identical to God through the entirety of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. He is homoousios. That's a term that means equal with. That's the term the ancient church councils gave us to describe Jesus' relationship to the Father. He is of the same substance. The exact imprint of the nature of God. Homoousios, similar substance, Homoousios, the same substance. 
Edward Gibbon quipped that the whole Roman Empire was divided over a diphthong, oi versus oo. Well, that's a really, really important diphthong. You better get that right. I, I see one English person smiling. Ask Kelly Walter what a diphthong is. Okay. Teresa knows too, I'm sure. Okay. Friends, the logos that became flesh and dwelt among us is exactly equal to God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's the second context. And rapidly, let's talk about the New Testament context very quickly. John, like other gospel writers, will record the words of Jesus. And Jesus, the Logos, will say astonishing things. I'll mention just one. In John 5, Jesus will claim the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The voice of Genesis 1 called creation into existence. And the voice of Jesus will resurrect a fallen creation. That's what he's claiming. People will literally live again when Jesus summons them to life. But how is it that the Logos has authority to call us back to life again? How can that be? We'll look right here in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3 tells us the Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. And because of that, the verse continues, look at these words. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Ever wonder what Jesus is doing right now? That's the answer right there. His speech upholds every atom in your body. He raises every tree and thousands of forests to pierce the heavens. He sustains the eagle in his flight through craggy spires. He sends the worm tunneling through your garden. He upholds every star and every glittering galaxy out there. Jesus has been doing that ever since he returned to glory and has resurrected humanity. Keep reading. After making purification for our sins, that's what he did when he came, what happened next? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Jesus said to Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he disappeared into heaven. Where'd he go? To the right hand there of the majesty on high. Right up to the throne of God. And that's where Stephen saw him in his martyrdom. Remember that? He looked up and there he was. Jesus the Word, now permanently incarnated, has resumed his throne. And he upholds the whole universe. And that's why he can resurrect the dead. From his position of regal majesty, he can literally reassemble the atoms of your body and, in fact, restore them to a permanently glorified form. And now skip ahead to one more passage. I'm almost done. Revelation 19. The question we're addressing is, what does the rest of the New Testament reveal about the word? All right, well, Hebrews 1 told us quite a bit. There are many passages we could turn to, but let's just conclude by turning to Revelation 19. Here's where the whole story of the Logos is going. Here John has a vision of heaven, a vision of the marriage of the Lamb, and of a coming ruler on a white horse. And let's just read. Let's read beginning with verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God 
For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. You better believe it's going to happen if there's martyrs in Afghanistan. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a great voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's Matthew 24, is it not? All those nations are going to worship the King. So verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I dare not digress, but who is the bride? Revelation 21 tells us it's all God's people from all ages, not just the church. It's all God's people. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And they fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. There's an exalted angel. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold the testimony, the witness of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Friends, if your prophecy does not exalt Jesus, get rid of it. True spirit of prophecy is to exalt the coming king, the reigning king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Lagos. 